Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Well, they took it. All the money, I mean. And by they, I mean billionaires. How they did it and how they justify it, that's the subject of a new book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World, by the chief economics correspondent of The New York Times, Peter S. Goodman. He'll join us to tell the stories of Mark Benioff, Jeff Bezos, and other extremely rich people who very much want the rest of us to believe that they have done well by doing good and that their open and legal tax avoidance schemes have not fleeced the middle class and hollowed out the government, even, maybe especially, during a pandemic. What was the old 90s leftist saying again? No war but class war? That's all next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Here's an eye-popping stat from Peter Goodman's Davos Man. If... Over the last 40 years, the income distribution of the United States had remained what it was in the first three decades after World War II. The bottom 90 percent, 90 percent of workers would have received an additional $47 trillion. Instead, as has been documented extensively, wealth has been redistributed up to the tippy top of the pyramid. The top 1% of Americans have added $21 trillion to their wealth over the last 40 years, while the bottom half has actually lost $900 billion. Whatever else the super-rich have done, it has not been to the benefit of the majority of Americans. Executives are paid based on profits, which have an inverse relationship with worker wages. But these are the rudimentary lessons that regular people learned during the Gilded Age. And the story that Peter Goodman wants to tell is about an evolved breed of elite who have convinced at least themselves that they are saving the world, not destroying it. Peter Goodman, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's talk about this person, the Davos man, and this thing that is Davos, a town in Switzerland, a way of life, a corrupt institution, a producer of a certain kind of uber elite consensus. How did you come to know the Davos man? Well, in a kind of backward, actually, I started off, I was living in London. I was writing a lot of stories about the rise of right-wing populism. I was writing about Brexit and Trump's trade war and the rise of the right in Italy and even Sweden. And I came to see this pattern was that beneath uh, what was on the surface, uh, this kind of reaction usually to immigration, some you know political opportunist would blame outsiders for the problems of declining uh, middle-class opportunities was this long-term pillage, this kind of systematic 
bottom-up transfer wealth from ordinary people to the wealthiest people on earth. And at one point, you know, I went to Davos in January of 2017 to attend the World Economic Forum, this kind of glittering gathering of the most powerful, the wealthiest people, heads of state. Uh, there are celebrities wandering around. And at that point, Brexit had just happened. Trump had been elected. And there was this sense of, you know, maybe we better take note of the roots of populism and inequality. There were all these earnest seminars on, on inequality. And I started sampling the solutions that were on offer among Davos man uh, for solving inequality. And it all amounted to, you know, workers have to train themselves. Uh, Ray Dalio, this hedge funder worth seven, something like $17 billion, said we had to uh, deregulate further to unleash animal, animal spirits <laughs> to create a more conducive environment for the making of money. My former boss, Ariana Huffington, talked about the need for more sleep and meditation as she launched her wellness site. You know, everything except for the people who are actually at Davos, who are congratulating themselves for trying to save the world, you know, gathering under the mantra, committed to improving the state of the world. Very ironic slogan for the people who are the greatest beneficiaries of the status quo. Everything except for those people giving up some of what they had through progressive taxation, through greater labor power. Yeah. You actually, you call this sort of grand delusion, you give it a name, the cosmic lie. What is the, there's, there's many different forms of the cosmic lie in your book, but what it's, what's it sort of like platonic form? I mean, centrally, it's this idea that has pervaded our discourse, not just in the United States, but really in major economies around the world, that when you organize your economic life around helping people who already have most of the money get more of it, when you cut their taxes, when you deregulate, we'll not only get innovation, we'll get economic growth, and we'll get this trickle down of wealth from the top to everyone else through the economy, something that has, in reality, happened zero times. <laughs> I mean, you have this line um, in the book, you know, where, where people still, this is still basically a, a common conception. I would not be surprised if we get some phone calls arguing um, that cutting regulation and reducing taxes increases uh, economic growth and, and innovation. And you have no patience for this anymore. You say the results are in. Cutting taxes on the wealthy has proved disastrous for the vast majority of ordinary people. It has not promoted growth. It has not yielded increased wages for rank and file workers. It has largely produced more wealth for the people who already had most of it. At some point, though, there must have been something to this thought that you could increase growth like where where did it come from and what evidence was it based on that this would work well i mean there was this model that animated reagan's tax cuts you know the laffer curve which is now its own punchline of its in interesting joke you know that well you know it just makes sense right the supply side generate more wealth for people who have it and it's got to go somewhere. So let's tell a fairy tale about it uh, going into the place that uh, we can say it will in order to sell it politically. It does make the stock market grow up, uh, go up. And of course, people tend to conflate the stock market with the real economy. And it makes wealthy people feel good about themselves. And then they go and contribute uh, their contributions to the political class. And the whole thing goes round again. Uh, but 
it, it is very much a fairy tale. And it's at the center of this conception that we can rely on the people I call Davos man, the billionaire class to fix all of our problems. I mean, Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of Salesforce, the Silicon Valley software company, actually said at Davos last year, it was virtual Davos, he said, CEOs are the heroes of the pandemic. He wasn't talking about frontline medical workers, wasn't talking about the people delivering our food or parents stuck at home dealing with children uh, contending with the torture of distance learning. You know, he was talking about CEOs and he said, you know, they've delivered vaccines, they've delivered credit, which has spared us of bankruptcy. And he specifically said, the government didn't save you. Non-governmental organizations didn't save you. We saved you, the CEOs, not for profit, mind you, but to save the world. And implicit in this idea, you know, this is the tell on why the cosmic lie is so valuable to Davos man. Implicit is government's dysfunctional. Government will simply squander your hard-earned dollars. Whereas if you let us have more of your dollars, we can take care of your problems. You tell another story about the pandemic, though, and it's about the introduction of private equity or the purchase of private uh, equity of healthcare staffing firms. Can you tell me a little bit more about these ER staffing companies, emergency room staffing companies, and what happened once private equity came to own uh, the two biggest of them, which employ one of every three medical personnel in the ER? You bet. So I focus on a company called Team Health, which was purchased by Blackstone, the largest private equity company on earth back in 2016 for $6 billion. Blackstone is the creation of Steve Schwartzman, who's one of the five key Davos men I follow in the book. Schwartzman's a genius for going wherever there's money to be made. You know, he made a foreclosure crisis by buying up lots of homes in the States. And he figured out, well, Americans are spending $3 trillion a year on healthcare. That's a lot of money. Let me get a piece of the action. Moreover, you know, any casino operator can tell you that it's a wonderful thing to make your money in a darkened place. People are exhausted and drinking and kind of taking leave of their senses. The emergency room is a uniquely lucrative part of the healthcare business, if that's how you conceive of it, because people are coming in not in the best of conditions, not necessarily uh, in the mind to figure out what the fine print of their health insurance policy says. If they have health insurance, they're inclined to sign what papers are put in front of them so that they can get on their way to getting some help. And uh, Schwartzman's company, uh, Black, this Team Health owned by Blackstone, has been accused of engaging in what's become known as surprise billing. The surprise is not of the happy variety. You know, you show up at your hospital, you think that you're covered, you sign off, you think you're being treated by someone who's in your network. And then weeks or months later, you start hearing from collection agents who want to collect from you the extravagant charges because you've actually signed off. Uh, unbeknownst to you, uh, you've given them permission to let you be treated by somebody who's out of your network, which means they can charge pretty much whatever they want. I mean, they'll have an argument with your insurance company, uh, they're likely to win. And this has become, you know, just it, its own kind of pandemic. And this is part of the injection of business conceptions into American healthcare. This, this explains, you know, why Americans lost a third of our hospital rooms in the couple of decades leading up to the pandemic, because 
you know, Schwartzman's investments were part of a wave of investment that turned healthcare into something not all that different from, you know, the airline industry or your local McDonald's where cust- uh, patients are now customers, got to maximize revenue, the people working in these places are costs to be eliminated, and you want pricing power. And the way you get pricing power is you limit the availability of personnel, you limit the availability of rooms. This is the backstory to how uh, we we had such a tragic uh, overwhelming of our healthcare system during the pandemic. You know, your uh, colleague there at the Times, Benjamin Applebaum, wrote a book called The Economist's Hour, in which he sort of argued that in the 70s, deregulation of some industries, even airlines, might have actually made sense. But then it kind of got taken too far. Do you agree with that? Or do you see that kind of 70s time as sort of um, a, a, a prelude to the problems that we have now? I mean, I don't have a fetish for the 70s, right? We can overdo it. Like 45 to 75, uh, we had productive economic growth with the old cliche about a rising tide lifting all boats that really applied. I mean, the key thing back from that era is that productivity gains in our economy actually turned into wage increases for working people. And you know, you correctly put the spotlight on that key stat in my book that if we had the economy organized the same way it once was, working people would have $47 trillion that they didn't have. So that's super important. But there's no question that you know technology changes, business models have to change, our mode of regulation has to change. It's not like we can just go back to the 70s and run everything the way we used to. We didn't have the internet then. We didn't have mobile telephones. So, so things, things should clearly change. But the problem is, who's driving the changing? Mm-hmm. And what my book reveals time and again is we don't have a reasoned, rational debate over what's the public interest? How can we maximize the benefits of capitalism? Capital, capitalism is fantastic, right? We do get innovation. We do get price transparency. If there's somebody regulating to ensure that it's a real marketplace and not just monopoly power rearing its head. What we've seen in the deregulation, you know, going back to Reagan, I mean, I've looked at this in the in the connection of, of uh, the beef industry or trucking. Uh, what we've seen time and again uh, is monopoly power taking root. Yeah. We're talking with New York Times global economics correspondent Peter Goodman, author of the new book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with New York Times global economics correspondent Peter Goodman, author of the new book Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. And we'd love to invite you into our conversation here. We want to know, is it possible to be a good billionaire? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. What do you think about when you hear someone who's worth $100 billion talking about corporate social responsibility? The number is 866-733-6786. Of course, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, those are you know, KQED Forum. And you can email your questions, send your comments in to forum at kqed.org. Org. So I do want to talk about you. You contrast the cosmic lie of trickle down economics with the big truth. And what is the big truth for you? The big truth is that we need regulators. We need social safety nets. We need progressive taxation. We need to invest in the things that people actually need. Health care, education, help with housing so that people can afford housing. And what we've discovered is that when we provide those things, and those things cost money, and the money has to come through progressive taxation, you then free people up to actually behave in the sorts of ways in which Davos man, through his kind of propaganda version of of the free market, you know, it's like it's a free market when he when it's in his benefit, when he has a market advantage. And the rest of the time we need, you know, rescue packages that he can craft in his own interest. If we lay that foundation, then the the market actually works and entrepreneurs can start new businesses. I mean, how many people in the United States have great ideas for businesses, but they can't start them because we know that you can't give up your health care. So they're stuck in some dead end job that does provide their health care. How many people, if they weren't worried about unemployment, potentially, you know, leading them to sleeping under a bridge somewhere, might take a chance and start a new career, might do something they care about more. And if education were cheaper, how many people would be able to get the skills? I mean, this mythic, this idea that we're always hearing that, you know, the coal miners should give up coal mining and train to be solar panel engineers. Well, we need help to make that happen, not just through the training, but the moving, the setting up house. I mean, all of these things cost money. And if we provide them, then we get the magic of the market system. Yeah. Well, and it's also, you know, looking at some of the per hour worked productivity numbers. And if you can contrast like France and the United States, we're actually very close to each other, as are the Germans. You know, this idea that to to get a productive economy or to have productive workers, we essentially need to have a debased society, just like doesn't really hold up. You know, a couple of years ago, I visited uh, a coal a, a mining operation in the center of Sweden. I mean, Sweden's governed by the Nordic model. And I talked to these guys who were threatened by automation, specifically, you know, automated trucks. And I was shocked that all of them said, yeah, we're fine with that. That's fine. That'll make your company more productive, make more money. And yeah, maybe we won't have the jobs we have now, but they'll train us for some other jobs. Their lived experience told them that this was true because in Sweden, the unions represent something like 70% of the workforce. They sit down opposite employers associations. They hash out wages that everyone understands must be reflective of the productivity gains in the economy. And they tell you time and again, we don't protect jobs, we protect workers. So if you're unlucky and you lose your job, you do get trained for something else. Contrast that to the US where 
any labor union and unions represent less than 10% of the workforce rationally will monkey wrench change, you know, no change. We're just barely hanging on with the status quo. Sweden, ironically, ends up being more entrepreneurial than the U S where, you know, we worship this idea that we're not nanny state Europeans. Yeah. You know, um, I don't want to lose the thread of the sort of implications of of the big truth, which, you know, means, you know, if we want public investments in education, healthcare, and infrastructure, we do need uh, a different kind of taxation. And I want to play a little clip which you reference in your in your book uh, and that I saw at the time. It's it's Rutger Bregman, a Dutch journalist and historian, whose comments went viral after he used his time at Davos at the 2019 uh, World Economic Forum to just blast attendees for avoiding the subject of tax avoidance. Let's hear it. And uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more. But come on, it's we got to be talking about taxes. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bull****, in my opinion. So a couple things to uh, ask about this. One, how is it that wealthy people in the United States are able to avoid paying the kinds of tax rates that regular working stiffs do? Um, and I'd actually like to kind of tick down all the things, or at least the, the ones that we know about. Well, first, let me tell you what happened after Rucker Bregman said that, because that part went viral, but nobody knows the, the, the last part unless you go watch it. The moderator, Edward Felsenthal, who's the editor-in-chief of Time Magazine, recently purchased by Benioff, who's the champion of stakeholder capitalism, this idea that you know billionaires will solve all of our problems. They're not just catering to profits. They're now catering to local communities and labor and other stakeholders. Uh, Felsenthal turns to Jane Goodall, who's a naturalist on this panel, and literally asks her, what is it about us as a species that you know we can't solve this problem? Which you know gets at... The central charade of the World Economic Forum at Davos, you know, if you're there, then you have signaled that you are part of, you're committed to improving the state of the world. You're part of the solution. So it can't be that you're at fault. It's not that the people at Davos are refusing to share. It's that we haven't come up with the right model. We don't understand our species. So this species that I write about, Davos Man, to answer your question, has systematically pulled the levers of our democracies. They have unleashed legions of lobbyists, accountants, lawyers. They've they've eviscerated antitrust enforcement, allowing monopoly power to come back. They have uh, eliminated all sorts of forms of taxation while you know finding loopholes, writing new ones. And the result of this is that people like, you know, Steve Schwartzman, the private equity magnate who's uh who's worth roughly $35 billion, but who earns most of his income in the form of uh, all sorts of, you know, partnership uh, profits that are not taxed at the rates that the rest of us are taxed. And the, and the rest of us, you know, it's pretty simple, right? We, we work, our employer withholds our taxes. It's a pretty right. basic calculation. That's a W-2. Not much creativity. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's not much creativity. So Schwartzman's basically paying a smaller percentage of his income in taxes than the people who are scrubbing his toilets. And that's true of Jeff Bezos. That's true of Mark Benioff. That's true of the billionaire class writ large. It did not happen by accident. That is the central mission of my book, to show that none of this happened. Though Davos man would like us to believe that, well, globalization is so complex, automation, the future of work, these issues are all bigger than any nation. This is just pure nonsense. I mean, Davos man has engineered a system that has effectively sent all the money his way. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the other major components, you know, we had uh, some reporters from ProPublica on the show talking about how people don't take income. They just borrow against all of their wealth, which then again shields them uh, from, from taxes again. Oh, that was amazing reporting. Yeah, that actually filled in. Uh, that was, you know, Jesse Eisinger and his colleagues at ProPublica. So, you know, let's remember Jeff Bezos earns his salary from Amazon has traditionally been about $83,000. That's about what a public school elementary teacher earns in the state of California. So if you tax income, that's what you're getting from Jeff Bezos. If you tax wealth, which is somehow, you know, Davos men will tell us, oh, it's impossible. It's too complicated. You know, how are you going to value Giacometti sculptures and, and sellers full of aged Bordeaux? You can't tax wealth. That's where the money is. I mean, Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion because he's paid in stock and he's holding stock. And then some people say, well, you know, it's really unfair to force people to pay gains on unrealized profits. Hey, guess what? Anybody in America who owns a home is paying a highly regressive form of wealth tax. It's called property taxes. You may not sell your house or realize some sort of gain, but the government comes after you because they say your real estate wealth is uh, resting upon the foundation of society providing, you know, the electrical system, sewage systems, internet connectivity, cops, schools, all the things to be dependent on. That costs money and you're going to pay, yet the richest people in our society are paying nothing. That's a, that's a cosmic joke. Yeah, of course, there was the property tax rebellion of the 1970s, which led to Prop 13 here in California, which has frozen in place so many... Uh, complex uh, arrangements. Right. Um, it's, I mean, this is a, I think there's an extremely interesting topic because basically if you listen to, you know, Manuel Saez here at, at Berkeley or Piketty, the, uh, the uh, economic historian, there's almost no way that we leave our current economic and societal problems behind without this kind of wealth tax. And yet, uh, and yet we would need an entirely different kind of enforcement mechanism to do this. And where does the power for that come from? Where does the power to get those people hired? Where, where does that how does that happen? I think that seems to be kind of one of the central questions of your book and, and really of our time. Uh, that is the $47 trillion question. No question about it. Uh, I mean, the prescriptions to inequality, uh, you know, what do we do? Right. It's not complicated. How do we do it? That's extremely complicated and difficult because we're effectively talking about forcing the people who've managed to control the system to relinquish that control or, or we have to overpower them and take control back so that we, the people are once again uh, writing the rules. And, you know, Davos man is not given up without a fight. I mean, take, take Jeff Bezos, right, worth $200 billion, whose wealth comes not merely while his warehouse workers during the pandemic are laboring without 
uh, protection, but because of that, right? It's entirely, these things are directly causal. His wealth is coming at the direct expense of the people who are being exploited in fully legal ways. Well, you know, I mean, Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon, they actually financed in the middle of the pandemic, the production of television spots that show, you know, happy workers, protected, all of the great things Amazon's doing to take care of their people. They disseminate them to broadcast outlets around America who then air them as news segments. I mean, the robber barons didn't have social media. The robber barons didn't have television. I mean, the, the power that Davos man has to protect himself against redistribution is formidable, which is why, you know, we got to start by at least recognizing that we've been sold a bill of goods. And we may look at the charade of Davos and laugh. You know, I mean, I've gone to Davos. I've watched billionaires engage in simulations of the Syrian refugee experience. Like they submit to being blindfolded and led around in the dark while people are hollering at them in a language they can't understand, demanding papers. And then they go off and have, you know, caviar and champagne at a banquet underwritten by a global bank or, or a technology giant. Like, okay, we can all, you know, absorb that for what it is. That's a charade. But their thinking has actually saturated our our political discourse, such that I think, you know, most Americans would accept, yeah, okay, we got to accept that Pfizer and Moderna uh, have uh, monopolized the fruits of publicly financed research. So they get to charge whatever they want for their vaccines, because we view the alternative as having no vaccines at all, when that, of course, is nonsense. I mean, we, the people, if we actually exert our democratic powers, could have vaccines and also have a situation where the rest of the planet has some protection, where we wouldn't have the Omicron variant by dint of the fact that, you know, frontline medical workers are treating patients in Africa without protection while we're giving boosters to kids in the United States. These are all problems that go to the fact that Davos man has sold us on narratives that perpetuate the status quo. I want to bring in some callers um, to ask you some questions. Larry from Davis, California. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I have two points. One is I believe you can you can believe in the marketplace or you can believe in regulation. The idea of the marketplace is the marketplace makes the rational decisions for our economy. If it doesn't, then you go to regulation. But you're only regulating the part of the marketplace you don't like. So clearly the idea of a rational marketplace is BS in the first place. And the second is that capitalism presumes that there is an ownership class. Where does that come from? And I believe that ownership only comes from violence. And we know that. There was a segment on earlier on this station talking about giving land back to indigenous people. So basically all the wealth is stolen in the first place, and you can't expect those who stole it to give it back. And a taxation system is never going to be any kind of a solution because it presumes they're still allowed to make that much money and we're just going to rake it back after they've made it but they didn't make it we know that the frontline workers the people at the very bottom of our economic system are the most critical people in the economic system if agricultural and food workers went on general strike what would we be doing so i'd like i think this is a great show i think everybody needs to hear this information and i'd like to hear you address that fundamental issue Sure. Thanks, Larry. I don't think we need a revolution. You know, I mean, we just don't. I mean, we had an economy from 45 to 75 that, yes, it was built on uh, colonial power 
a, a seizing of the land and resources from indigenous people. I mean, look, America's built on slavery. I mean, there, there's, and, and the permutations of that are still with us. And not to dismiss any of that. I mean, there are huge struggles for equity uh, that are much bigger than the scope of, you know, antitrust enforcement and taxation. But in terms of the central problem that workers are not getting their fair share of the gains, you know, we pretty well fixed that problem when we uh, broke up the monopolies of the robber barons, when we laid down the New Deal policies that included things like social security. Hello? And, yeah, hello. Harry? Uh, I don't know how that's uh, breaking in. Sorry, go, go ahead, oh, Peter. Oh, that's Goodman. okay. Well, no, I mean, so so that's, I mean, that's essentially the end of my thought. Like, we fought this battle before, and it's not that 45 to 75 was this magical time that we have to go back to. I mean, we had the Vietnam War. We had Jim Crow. I mean, let's not dismiss any of these things. But we had a system where everybody was getting a piece of the economic gains. And, boy, we could solve a lot of problems if we got back to that. Got some uh, comments uh, coming in from Spokes. What makes a good billionaire? Robert writes, wrong question. There should be no billionaires allowed. One billion dollars is enough for anyone to live a thousand lifetimes while hardworking, honest people are suffering lives of grinding inhumanity every day. Should there be billionaires? I mean, I don't think that billionaires uh, fulfill any social function. I think if the public decides that we don't need billionaires, we can fix that real easy, easily with, uh, with, with the tax system. But I also don't think we have to like somehow outlaw billionaires as the objective. I mean, we can structure tax collection uh, many different ways. I mean, the key thing is we need to get a lot more from the billionaire class. And, that, and the only way to really pull that off is through a, a serious wealth tax. Yeah. Has any place in the world successfully been able to implement that? I mean, it seems difficult to do on a country by country basis. Well, actually, this is the way Davos man has killed wealth taxes in the U.S. Is they'll say, oh, look, you know, the dozen countries in Europe and 10 of them have have uh, have mm -hmm. redone their wealth taxes. I mean, wealth taxes in Europe have been set too low. And that's been part of the problem. So, you know, the classic case of the uh, the widow in Barcelona, whose husband, the butcher, left her the apartment that is now suddenly worth more than the threshold for the wealth tax, who has to sell it uh, in order to pay the wealth tax. Yeah, we don't need that. Uh, we just set the set the number much higher. You know, if you set the number at 500 million or a billion, surely uh, there are lots of people going to be able to pay without any horrible inequity. You know, moreover, the billionaires will tell you, Oh, it's too. Jamie Dimon has said this. He's another character in my book, the, the CEO of, of J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, the problem with a billionaire tax is, and wealth taxes, it's just too too difficult to implement because we can't value you know modern art. Well, sure we can. First of all, I mean, if J.P. Morgan Chase is running things the way they tell us, they're pretty good at valuing just about anything. But there's a guy named Nick Hanauer, a billionaire up in Seattle, who's come up with a simple solution to that. Let the billionaires value their stuff themselves. And if they game the system, give the government the right to step in and call an auction. So you want to say your Maserati's worth five bucks? Watch we'll it take driven it. away. Yeah. We're talking with New York Times global economics correspondent Peter Goodman, author of the new book, Davos Man. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Peter Goodman, author of the new book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. He's the New York Times Global Economics Correspondent. I want to get back to calls. Michael from San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hey there. Hi, Alexis. Hey, Michael. Hey. Um, so, you know, be, being in the entrepreneur in San Francisco, I think we're part liber- libertarian, part progressive, uh, and I think the, a journalistic bias is to think that the government has to solve everything. It, do you see any sort of movement happening of people that are willing to take more responsibility and want these kinds of wealth taxes or want this kind of, um, you know, like better version of the system that we have? Uh, or do you think that it has to be kind of FDR-style government. Hmm. Peter Goodman? I mean, I'm not advocating that we go back to the 1930s. Uh, I think, you know, we have a lot of needs that clearly aren't financed. I mean, thanks to the cosmic lie, people are walking around saying we can't afford things that are clearly affordable in just about every other major economy, like healthcare and education. I mean, the bargain that Americans have is, is, is just, like, absurd to most people in, in the rest of the world. Uh, so, you know, you talk you talk about uh, whether there's movement amongst entrepreneurs like you know, Benioff. I'll take Benioff at his word. Right. Benioff will tell you I'm all for higher taxes. Those Salesforce is actually part of the business roundtable. This Washington lobbying shop that played a lead role. It was then led by Jamie in delivering the Trump tax cuts. One point five trillion dollar package of tax cuts, mostly lavish on people like Mark Benioff and Jamie. Look, if billionaires want to be serious about stakeholder capitalism and actually cater to labor and pay out higher wages and deal with climate change, great. That's terrific. But we can't count on that. It's not that the government's going to solve all of our problems. It's the government represents or is supposed to represent the popular will and where markets clearly aren't solving our problems. I mean, in healthcare, we have a market failure. The government has to play some role in influencing the market. And, you know, again, this is not some sort of original idea. Like we've been living through uh, this experiment where we pretend that business is the solution to all of our problems and government is the enemy. And the result is staggering inequality and a society in which huge numbers of people don't believe in anything at all. I mean, in the U.S., the high vaccine, the low vaccination rates, the January 6th insurrection, like You can talk about all sorts of causes, but the foundational one is that huge numbers of people 
in the United States through their lived experience have concluded legitimately that the people running the system don't really care very much about their ability to support their families. That part's real. The crazy conspiracy theories that take root, you know, that's the work of opportunists and Davos man uh, benefits, you know, dramatically from dysfunction because it perpetuates the status quo. But the reality that huge numbers of people have needs that have gone, you know, unmet by our market fantasy, that's that's just a fact. I've been really taken with sort of the the rise. I mean, kind of in in, in this a little bit of middle ground, uh, the rise of the kind of industrial policy people again in uh, the United States, who are saying, you know, let's not necessarily say no government, big government. Like, what about if we actually have governmental entities that understand fundamentally the way that particular industries work? We had people on. If you want to uh, look up some of the thinking on this, on this show, we had. Uh, semiconductor people who want to build uh, a, a set of governmental institutions that both understand how to support semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. and get those jobs uh, kept here in the U.S. And so I, to me, at least, it feels like there's people who are sort of vectoring towards a different kind of governance that could actually be part of these solutions. Um, quick question from Holly. Um, Holly writes... Are there any Davos women, Laureen Powell Jobs, Melinda Gates? If so, any significant differences and any non-American Davos people? Uh, yeah, there are, there are women and non-Americans. I mean, Jack Ma appears in my book. He's the founder of Alibaba. Uh, there, there are uh, Sheryl Sandberg appears in, in my book. But, you know, by and large, Davos man is reflective of the traditional power structure that's been dominated by the people in charge, overwhelmingly white, male and traditionally American. Yeah. Let's bring in Deepa from Pleasanton. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me, and I think it's a fantastic show. You know, I was saying um, I worked in the employee ownership field, and I think it's a great leveler. I think that might be the solution, have all private companies mandate equity options or equity, some form of equity for their employees, like we had 401k plans. And when they get a share of the pie, I think it, it's that's wealth building. If the company does well, they get a share in it. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts? Yeah, Deepa, thanks so much for that. Um, Peter Goodman, you you address cooperatives um, pretty extensively in the book, actually. Somewhat, yeah. Um, cooperatives are interesting models, and I think Deepa, you're 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 putting your finger on on a significant issue. Uh, I mean, I look at a cooperative in Cleveland, uh, Evergreen, that was formed. Uh, to handle uh, bed linens for the Cleveland Clinic, this big healthcare provider. And, you know, guess what? They have to compete on price, but they're able to while paying their people a living wage because they're not returning dividends to shareholders. So, you know, this is a a very good way uh, to ensure that there's a transfer of productivity gains uh, to the workforce. And this is not, by the way, just some sort of marginal thing. It turns out that this is a really huge part of many economies. In the Basque region of Spain, uh, one cooperative uh, dominates, you know, supermarket chains, finance. And, and actually, after the great financial crisis and the just crippling austerity that hit Europe and Spain particularly, uh, they managed to avoid uh, mass unemployment uh, and hits to income. And, you know, cooperatives like Mondragon, which is the Basque um uh, group there, 
you use that as one of kind of this, uh, it's almost like a raft of different measures that could do something. Of course, we have taxes and we have like, you know, the the big truth that we essentially need to do spending on infrastructure, education and healthcare. But then there, you also want to shore up the idea that there's other things that people can do. So what are some of those other components of kind of the rescue package for everybody else who's not a billionaire? Right. I mean, so there's a particularly interesting initiative run by an outfit called the Democracy Collaborative that's also behind the Evergreen Cooperatives. It's called the Healthcare Anchor Network. And they've gone around to nonprofit uh, healthcare providers in the states who collectively, I don't have the numbers in my head, but they're very large. We're talking like tens of billions of dollars that they spend on procurement for all sorts of services, whether they're building a new building or hiring somebody to cater meals. And they have a bias toward contracting uh, with local companies in order to keep wealth in communities instead of getting sent out to shareholders. That's a potentially promising way to do it. And, you know, that's something that avoids the fact that it's very difficult to pry money out of Washington for just about anything that doesn't involve tax cuts for rich people. Brian writes, progressive taxation is a good start, but it's not enough. Not when our polarized political landscape can undo any progress four years later. We need systemic reform. How can capitalism allow wage growth and protection of the working class when shareholders' interests take precedent over anything else? Well, that's quite right. I mean, my criticism in the book is fundamentally about having organized our economies around shareholder interests. And I argue that stakeholder capitalism, you know, this idea that, no, now we're actually catering to all these stakeholders. There's always a very special stakeholder, and that is the shareholder. Uh, And, you know, Larry Fink, who's a character in my book, who's the world's largest asset manager, controls $10 trillion, writes these annual letters to other CEOs touting stakeholder capitalism as as the solution to climate change, uh, to uh, the need to uh, increase uh, wages for working people. He's always talking about labor, but he's never talking about labor unions. Progressive taxation is not enough. Uh, And ultimately, uh, we need a whole suite of changes, including antitrust enforcement, including investment uh, in in things like infrastructure. And we cannot count on the billionaire class out of its own, you know, good heartedness to solve our problems. We need rules. Let's bring in Aid from uh, Berkeley. Welcome. Hi. Good morning. Your guest right on. I went through that in 1980 when Reagan took over. Had a big case. He destroyed it when he totally annulled the antitrust laws. You know, right now, the U.S. economy is totally broken, already beyond repair. Not, taxation is not enough now. It's not enough at all. Reagan himself was sort of an actor, but he was ruled by a new liberal community, you know, group. Milton Friedman, Greenspan, Span, Larry Sommer, uh, the rest of them. They totally destroyed the economy of this country with voodoo economics. Exported jobs, shut down factories, and uh, they all, all kind of thing against the middle class. I mean, America had the greatest middle class in history. It was destroyed within 10, 8 years. Reagan was in power. And cost my own business millions of dollars when he sided with Mitsubishi Electric of Japan uh, in a court case I had brought against them to keep jobs in America. Reagan, may his spirit just be in eternal health. The damage to this country. The only solution, by the way, right now, not taxation. We need to put ceiling on wealth. We have to. Because trillions and trillions of dollars were shifted to few hands at the top by robbery. You remember the bubble after bubble economy, the real estate bubble, the saving and loan association bubble, all of that 
money, trillions, was shifted to few hands. Oh, man. You have brought up so many points that I want to bounce, Peter. First uh, one I'd like uh, you to take on was was actually the last one. Let's do them in reverse order. The the, uh, global financial crisis of the aughts was incredibly lucrative for some people and some people that you talk about in your book. It was very bad for many communities, um, uh, almost all communities, actually. But it was really good for some of these billionaires. What did did they do to take advantage of that? And what kind of lasting changes did that introduce into our economy? Well, let's start with the lasting changes, right? I mean, that was a landmark in ordinary people looking at the system and concluding that it wasn't really about them, right? Because, I mean, the banks got bailed out, but uh, as, you know, you were talking about Jesse Eisinger's work before, you know, as Jesse Eisinger proves in, in, in a wonderful book that people ought to read that I, whose title I can't say on the radio, uh, the ba- none of the bankers uh, went to prison. There was no prosecution. And then Obama and his Treasury Secretary, Tim Geithner, concluded that, you know, well, we got to bail out the banks because the banks are the center of the economy, but we can't bail out homeowners because that would be rewarding bad behavior. You know, that would be rewarding people who, you know, pulled money out of their homes through home equity lines of credit to go to Tahiti and, you know, build bathrooms they didn't really need. And so, you know, moral hazard, they said, would result from that. Well, let's remember, of course, we all know people who did abuse home equity lines of credit for all sorts of foolish things. But we also know lots of people who simply happened to be born when they were and had children of their own when they did and were told by society that they had to live in places with good school districts. And that involved paying whatever it cost to live in those school districts. And they were dealing with the reality that there'd been all this reckless lending by these giant financial interests that had turned the financial system into a huge casino, driving up the asset prices. So they had to engage in the funny money borrowing themselves just to send their kids to school. And when those people were in harm's way and didn't get a bailout, while they watched, you know, AIG get bailed out, while their executives were literally taking bonuses paid out right after the government gave them $170 billion and, and hanging out in spas in Southern California, eating, you know, chocolate dipped strawberries from the hot tub. Uh, you know, that, that really saps whatever faith society has in leadership. That, that's an enduring lesson. Uh, you know, people like Steve Schwartzman, they then profited on the lack of homeowner rescues, created enormous inventory in distressed uh, assets. And then Schwartzman, classic Davos man, tells this tale that, you know, as I bought up all these foreclosed homes and then sold them for billions in profit, that was actually just an act of civic responsibility. That wasn't about the money. He tells this story in his memoir, how we went into communities where homes had been abandoned and overgrown lawns, hiding rodents, and we cleaned it all up. And you can almost hear, you know, the soundtrack for a life insurance commercial with a, <laughs> you know, a golden retriever puppy romping on a lawn with a toddler. I mean, the reality is he creates this thing called inpatient homes, jacks up everybody's rent, cuts maintenance. All of these are enduring lessons for society about who actually counts when it comes time to rescue people. I just wanted to shout out two other people's work who I think has been tremendous on what happened during the the bubble of bubbles, as I'd called it. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, race for profit, you know, and her idea on um, predatory inclusion, that people were allowed into these sort of mortgage uh, markets for the first time, but on terms 
that were not equal to those who had preceded them. And then uh, our own uh, Aaron Glantz, uh, right. home wreckers, which is uh, a pretty tremendous examination of the, those exact dynamics that you were talking about of people buying up residential real estate and squeezing the life out of it, squeezing the money out of it, really, and the life out of the people living in those places, and how many of those people were then uh, put in charge of the economy in the Trump administration. Yeah, that's a great book. I drew on it, actually, in my own book. Yeah. So you've written this book. You've got a large critique of the world and the way it exists. You've got a package of things um, that might help. Where, where do you go from here? <laughs> like, you know, I think a lot of people have gotten to this point. A lot of our commenters have gotten to this point where they're like, OK, we get the problem. We get what the solutions are uh, or at least, you know, wh- where to begin. Uh, but what now? Well, you know, we start by getting the right kind of angry. I mean, now we're so full of polarization and, uh, you know, we're, we're falling for every kind of trick aimed at dividing us by people who want our clicks for advertising revenues or to confuse us in the service of preventing change. You know, a lot of what I write about could make you sad. You know, the heartbreak of people losing their jobs, the heartbreak of people losing their loved ones uh, to healthcare systems that simply weren't set up for their needs. Most of what I write about is really outrageous. And we need to reckon with that outrage as, as we use it and channel it uh, to hold the people who've done this to us accountable. And, you know, again, that's easier said than done. Davos man is not just going to disarm and voluntarily decide to share his wealth, but democracy is a formidable tool and it's been used before in exactly this situation. We have been here before. The struggle we're talking about is the same struggle uh, that Americans waged against the robber barons in reclaiming democracy uh, toward very productive ends. John tweets, there's a letter from billionaires slash millionaires that was sent to Davos demanding higher taxes on themselves. Not all wealthy people want to avoid fair taxation. What do you think? Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, they don't seem to have that much power or we wouldn't be having this conversation. But yeah, let's let's applaud. Let's hope that they can persuade others. Let's hope that they'll actually use their money uh, to uh, give us some balance against the donor class that's essentially uh, funneling money to lobbyists who are perpetuating the status quo. Yeah. Alex writes, the uber rich benefit to a great extent by not bearing the consequences of the damage they do to the environment, the consequences of which disproportionately impact the poor and middle classes. Further, they benefit from rapidly increasing automation of labor. Ultimately, we must have massive redistribution of wealth or we will have heads on pikes at the front of angry peasant mobs. Beth tweets, will people not rise up and do something about the slave master mentality of the elite billionaires who are making inequality worse? Or these few elites throw crumbs to keep people in their place? Beth and Alex, I am going to go out on a limb and say, you're going to like this book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. We've been talking with its author, Peter Goodman, New York Times Global Economics Correspondent. Peter, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Alexis. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.